0: Hello podcast listeners, this is Travis with a quick content warning for this episode covering My Favorite Thing is Monsters, and this will also play before the next book club episode about that same graphic novel. My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris is a graphic novel that does depict violence against women and assault and sexual violence as well, in addition to just general topics of Violence, and I guess I would say gore, since it is a murder mystery of sorts, and that is depicted in various, I mean, frankly, creative ways by the main character, but it is depicted pretty clearly and regularly. As always, with our content warnings here, I'm not going to timestamp anything because our discussions don't go in order of the story, so it's difficult to say when these themes come up or these topics come up more in one segment than another. It's just kind of a blanket warning for the entire podcast, so if you're comfortable listening to us discuss those themes and topics in this episode and the next one, one, then, as always, we hope you join us for that discussion. If not, then this might be one to skip or perhaps go research the book further before listening in. And without further ado, let's get to the episode. <music> Hello and welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that finds itself frequently entranced by and quite frankly lost in various paintings of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Amanda, which painting are you coming at us from tonight?
1: Oh man, that's uh that's a tough one. They're actually quite good. Um I would be the one in the cave, I think. Yeah. That uh she she has in there. <laughs>
0: I'm in the demon one, surrounded by all my fr- my Ooh. demon friends. <laughs> Some more nefarious than others, I suppose. Some more dangerous than others. A couple of them are just trying yeah. to help out. It's true. If you don't know why we're discussing 18th and 19th century paintings, it's because we're here today with a book club episode. Specifically, we are here with the part two book club episode on the graphic novel My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. We'll be discussing the back half of that work today. If you're unfamiliar with our format, book club episodes are analytical deep dive episodes. So we'll be going in on the specifics of that work and talking through, you know, the details, spoiling everything from from the whole book, the whole graphic novel is available now. So heads up on that front. A couple of social media plugs up top. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Book Club podcast. We have social media feeds They don't have book club in the name. I don't know why I added that. Um, On Facebook and Instagram, you can find us at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. And so, you know, follow us there. Tell your friends and family. Rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We always do appreciate that. And we do post updates for the books on social media. So check those. As I mentioned, this is a book club on My Favorite Thing is Monsters. And we'll be covering the second half of that graphic novel today. If you think you've ended up in the wrong place and on the wrong episode, well, in the feed you'll find a book review for that graphic novel in addition to part one of the book club so if you're looking for a different part of that book or just a recommendation or review that is also up in the feed so pretty much from this moment on we'll be diving into spoilers again discussing everything that happened in the book it's all fair game now we'll be doing our analyses on the entirety of it anything before we start amanda
1: Uh, Nope, I'm ready.
0: Okay, let's dive into the specifics then and talk about this graphic novel. We'll begin with the first segment we always do for the second half, and that's just going to be highs and lows, which is kind of self-explanatory. Amanda, why don't you start us off with what you thought was a high point in the second half of this book?
1: Yeah, um, I really loved this book, and I feel like I've been doing this a lot lately, but I have three highs instead of two and two, Um, but... So one of the the highs that I have is um, the character complexity. Even the minor characters are multifaceted. Um, and so some of the minor characters, for example, that I, I felt like could be uh, given almost like their own stories um, is Salvatore, uh, or nicknamed Sally, which is the, the, the henchman for mm-hmm. Mr. Gronin. Um, Missy, who is the love interest (laughs) for Mm -hmm. Karen and Franklin, who is probably my favorite character. um, Mm -hmm. They, these are three characters that immediately came to mind for me when I was thinking of like how um, the characters are not just these like boring, very static creations.
0: No, completely. They all get a bit of depth added to them though. I'll get to this. Well, I guess I could just do my low now. I thought the work did buckle under its own ambitions. I I don't think all of the characters... It's not that they didn't work, because they all did. And I think Franklin was a great addition to the ending. He was probably the best drawn character. I think he had some of the more provocative images, the way his scars kind of... Like, the way she drew that and the light and shadow with it, I thought, was some of the best drawings. But I just think, like, the Peeping Tom guy revelation, the way that built up, and then the payoff of it, I just, I'd forgotten who he was by then. And so it's like, oh, who is this? And then she, you know, they have a little chat in the attic, and he's revealing things. And it's just kind of like, why is he the person to reveal this dramatic family secret? Like, I don't, it. That, I think it it buckled under its own ambitions. Also, I mean, we can talk about this now as well. It's kind of a low. But the fact that Franklin gets introduced and then they layer, like, it, it's with his arrival that we get the political backdrop. We get more stuff about, obviously, it's she's literally with him when they find out Dr. King is killed. It That's a little heavy-handed for me. That's, like, probably using his character a bit too forcefully or something. Like, as soon as a black character gets introduced, we also need to then... I mean, it's fitting, though, I suppose, that he can be kind of a symbol or kind of a mouthpiece for this this moment in history. So it's not inappropriate, but it did, I think those two moments signaled for me maybe that this book had bitten off more than it could chew, so to speak. Um, and especially with the revelations with the peeping guy, I just, I just literally couldn't remember who he was, didn't know why he would have mattered or why that was so built up in the story and so it just and then again for him to be the person to introduce the idea that she has a dark family secret she's unaware of is just kind of like eh I didn't why why get it from him right like who cares about this person um so I don't know yeah I thought Franklin was exceptionally cool and like a really well realized introduced person but I don't know if they leaned on him too much or if that again the political introductions were a little too coincidental for me or something but yeah no Franklin I thought was one of the best drawn things in the book
1: yeah and i love uh the depth of his personality too that we get to see a lot of him Mm -hmm. um for salvatore sally the the peeping guy he's um i found him really interesting too because i thought we see him before in as like just the guy who delivers the money to karen okay from laughing jack so he's that guy Gotcha. And then he just, like, kind of disappears until we find out that he has been actually watching the building since, like, since before Karen right. was born. Right. And and it's, like, what comes to mind for me is I'm, like, well, that's another mystery is why is Laughing Jack, did Laughing Jack hire him to do that? Or is he actually being played by Sally um, and Sally is actually working for somebody else to watch Laughing Jack. And so it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. I don't know, it, it adds a layer, I think, of complexity and another layer of like mystery to what's going on in the storyline.
0: At some point, I, I guess I just personally, maybe it's a genre thing, too. I just don't want to peel back any more Russian nesting dolls. I would I would just like <laughs> it to end. I would just want there to be a final doll. You know, I just don't I guess I just didn't need another angle, I think. Again, it just feel it struck struck me as maybe a touch too ambitious. That there was getting a little unwieldy. I was already struggling enough with um, when they're at the museum with Franklin and the that character might be an actual ghost, huh? That we I know we were joking in part one about. I forget her right. friend's name. Her really uh, malnourished uh, Sandy. friend, Sandy. Yeah, and I thought those were two of the better characters. Those are side characters that worked maybe because they're her age or something. They had a little m- m- more depth or something. But yeah, that was. It's such a surprising joke we made to have it show up again in such a literal way. That that shocked me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then she's like... She disappears after the museum, and we only. And Karen says something like, "You know, I I check in on her, and I never see her. But sometimes I think I see her in the windows, but Mm -hmm. not at her home." It's. I think it's
0: pretty (laughs) clear how Franklin reacts that it's. She must not be real. I mean, it's almost. Then again, it does cast some of those earlier moments in the book into a confusing light. Now, like, well, whose house did she go to, or did she imagine that also? Like, you know, what empty apartment was that? But um, it's pretty clear that she's not, I mean, the way Franklin treats her, he says things like, is she still with us? Is she, you know, he says things like that, or like, who are you talking to? And it's so I'm pretty sure it's meant to be pretty explicit that she's not a person, that she's imaginary, but it did um, cause me to have to rethink, I mean, fittingly enough for a work that's complex like this and has a lot going on that I had to then go rethink some of those early moments with Sandy. Right. But I would throw that under again a high for me. The both the Franklin presence in it, the way he's drawn, the his yeah, the the I mean he's kind of a savior hero figure at first and then we we get layers to his onion, so to speak. And then yeah, the interplay with Sandy. Sandy comes mm-hmm. back, their trip to the museum, all that stuff worked really well. The low is just I think uh, if I could say it broadly, it's just kind of maybe one too many characters for me especially when they get to when we get to some ending scenes that i was like i'd you know i maybe i'm thinking like an editor again in that really uh negative way but it's like i want some of these pages back so that i can give them to other scenes or something so mm-hmm. how about another high or low for you whatever
1: um i'll do i'll do my low actually since we've been talking about lows um for for me, the uh, Karen's mom's yeah. death sequence and her the progression yep. of her illness just really I felt like was underexplored or underrepresented in a lot of ways, and I th- I think that for me that's tied very much so with the the lack of of like time flow here. I don't know how long the this uh, novel has progressed. Like I don't I don't know how long was her mom in chemo? How long was her mom actually sick? And how long has it been since Anka's death? I I have no idea about any of these things. And I looked back to see if maybe um, there was the, you know, the, the chapter breakups, which is like the movie or the magazine redrawings that she does. I was looking at the dates to see if maybe they correlated with that. And they don't, they, they jump around as well. So it's not, that doesn't indicate any kind of chronology that goes on either. So I don't, for somebody who is so important to her and is like her sense of like, it's kind of like her anchor, which is what we see from the very beginning, right? Her mom is her anchor and, and her safety. Then to just all of a sudden her mom, like as soon as she finds out that her mom is sick, her mom like disappears from the narrative until the final death scene.
0: Right, right
1: that to me was bewildering in a lot of ways. And I know that, you know, she's a kid and she's, you know, this is supposed to be told from a kid's perspective, but I don't know. That just really, I was just like, what's happening right now with the mom? And like, how long is this taking? Like D's is like, we see D's like, I guess the progression is the visual of D's like slowly over the pages. He's like getting more and more worn out and, and like not as vibrant. Um, in, in the in the visuals but that's it that's the only yeah, thing totally. that we see regarding yeah. that So
0: <clears throat> you could have told me at yeah. certain points that this took place over a week and I would have believed it but then yeah it does call into question the illness and the progression of that and everything it, it is pretty baffling I mean I guess we're given the king the assassination of Dr. King is kind of a I mean I guess I could have googled that date frankly I didn't but I, I guess that's kind of a grounding moment because we know that takes place on a day so, that's something we yeah. can go off of, but no, I that was my other <clears throat> that was my other low is that the the issue with transitions with abrupt switching, it never fully resolved and there were a couple of moments including one in the scene the mother's death sequence that I think I noticed it the most and I think what I resolved um to understanding or the resolution of my understanding would be I think we're prepared when we read graphic novels to be ready for um, inter-page transitions. That's just, you know, your brain is ready for a pause and kind of has to shift anyway. But I think this book has a lot of Mm -hmm. intra-page transitions, that, and that is a different kind of pace Or you have to prepare yourself to kind of jump ahead or switch your flow within a page. And it, I, I just did find it hard because of the experimental nature of this to fully find myself I did, I continued in the back half of this book to misread pages straight up where I would like go to a, a different box or dialogue and then I would realize like, oh I wasn't meant to go there I meant to go down then up or right then down or right then left then bottom or. <laughs> and so it just I think the intra-page transitioning in this book created some awkward moments now granted it's complex and the art is so phenomenal you're probably Going to be you know skimming the page a couple times anyway, so I ended up getting there with a lot of that stuff. But it definitely affected my reading, and I think there were some parts of the mother's death sequence that felt pretty rough. Where it was just kind of like, why couldn't we have done a page break instead of why are we doing that like in the middle of a page? It just felt too sudden, or the shifts felt awkward to me. Mm
1: Mhm. Yeah. The I had mentioned um, in the previous episode about like the that my make it stop was the transitions. Some of the transitions were a little little iffy there. So yeah, I'm not surprised that it continued into the second. Yeah. Oddly (laughs) enough,
0: I'll use my I elaborated on that low moment, kind of tagged on to yours. I'm going to then switch gears yeah. and do a high that was a similar time in the book. I do think the dream sequence and kind of hallucinogenic nature of the ending, I don't know how many pages, maybe 20 or so pages, get rough, roughly, give or take, I thought worked really well. Especially the final couple in the forest and that whole sequence, she's wandering between... Um, different landscapes and through different artworks and stuff. I thought it had an incredibly strong ending. It, it recalled a lot of things and images from earlier in the book, including the forest of the what did you call it, the Eye Forest or something like that. The is that what it's called? Yeah. And so I just thought that yeah. the given the gr- her grief, you know, and the recency of it all, and just the intensity, like up to that point, a lot of those recent drawings also were in. I felt a lot brighter color, or she like really amped up the. Saturation or something. This is when not knowing the the artistic words I should know to, it would help, but I don't know them. <laughs> but there is definitely I felt like a kind of the register or the breadth of the colors really picked up after her death, or kind of like at the funeral and some other parts. And then yeah, to have it go into those landscapes, those are really intense. And yeah, I just think the whole ending clicked for me. It it gave me plenty to ponder. It was kind of slow moving. It didn't explain itself all the way. There was some Anka dream sequence stuff. She's looking through her bullet wound. And so there's some symbolic things to read into. Obviously, it does conclude in like an ultimate kind of apex uh, cliffhanger example. So if you hate cliffhangers, then this... I mean, it is a volume one. It's labeled as that on the spine. So you, you get what you get. But I did think that that whole sequence, once that initiated did really work despite the mother's actual death sequence not working for me as much the the follow-up to it i thought was a pretty strong ending
1: i agree yeah the the ending was phenomenal and i was like immediately i was looking up um where can i buy volume Mm -hmm. two (laughs) yeah yeah totally so which i guess has been pushed back. It seems know. to
0: be mired.
1: But I, once it's out, I will Certainly, be re- yeah, <laughs> it seems
0: to be mired in some kind of production hell cuz it's it was supposed to come out in 2017 yeah. but i think maybe maybe like many things it, it had some natural delays that it was fighting off and then covid, who knows what happened from there. So cuz a couple year delay okay. for a certain type of work like okay, you could see that. This one was a pretty big hit at least critically it was, hopefully commercially too. But so, you know, you could maybe see some leeway getting in for deadlines. And then yeah, in twenty and or twenty twenty and twenty one, who the heck knows? I mean it could who knows what kind of complications exist now for it, but yeah. So yeah, that I just I know I mentioned my other high was Franklin and Sandy's reoccurring kind of um, presence in the story, but I did think that that sequence at the end showcased not only the experimentation because she's again she's wandering in out of these landscapes. I think Ferris uh, is quite obviously loves to recreate reference art, and so that she does that really well. Still here, she kind of lends her own kind of off kilter, really intensely, you know, um, h- hatched drawing style to that stuff, and it all looks fantastic. And it mm-hmm. is you know eerie and kind of dreamlike, so it all works. There's that one page with the the stars you know such an easy effect to uh, to make but then it just looks so great when it's done or something it's yeah i don't know she has an understated but kind of like really descriptive style that worked and i thought the ending sequence yeah was pretty great
1: yeah i agree and um, another high that i had uh deals with the artwork actually in that um the the intricacies and subtleties of her visuals i found um really enjoyable as well um and and by the subtleties, I mean that sometimes she includes visuals that she will not actually like, it's just a visual, but then you'll read further and you'll be like, wait a minute. Did I see a reference to this statement or this idea previously? So she actually includes it, which messes with the chronology as well, but I don't mind it as much when, when it comes to the visuals like this. Um, But uh, sometimes she'll include visuals um, that she won't actually, like, have a reference for until several yeah, pages later. Yeah. So, which I, I find that interesting because, I mean, I'm I'm totally okay with, like, flipping back and forth yep. with the visuals because they're stunning anyway. Um, but the example that I chose specifically because it really stood out to me was uh, the Adam and Eve picture. So when... Um, Karen finds out that Deez has been reading her notebook, which is after Missy's mm-hmm. birthday party after, and they like sneak off and like hug in the stairwell. And Dee's is like, um, you know, having relations with the stranger in apartment to be, mm-hmm. um, afterwards when they're walking home, um, they're, uh, walking along and like the city is burning because of, um, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And um, they're having this really in-depth conversation. And as they're walking along, we see like just randomly a picture of um, a visual of this couple, this random coupled strangers and underneath and in between the two people standing there is Adam and Eve. Like she wrote down the words Adam and Eve. And then Three pages later, and not by, like, three single pages. I mean, like, the full mm-hmm. layout. I, I consider those, like, a full, the yeah. best of the full page. So I guess, like, by novel definitions, like, six pages later. Um, then then Dee finds out that she's, um, she's a lesbian, and he makes the comment, the dumb shits around here will say shit. Like, it's Adam and Eve, not Adele and Eve. So he said that and i was like ah that's why that picture is in there and then i flipped back to like see if there was any other mm-hmm. significance to it but yeah so little subtleties like that i i found very interesting and maybe the
0: done. maybe the pages that i undervalued in the first episode the sort of intros to the sections or chapters mm-hmm. if you want to call them that maybe that is meant to prime us for that sort of backtracking or that sort of kind of really light thematic foreshadowing or something that there's these kind of motifs to come up yeah the other example i when you were describing that i thought it was the trophy the kind of joke you're a bad person trophy that their family mm-hmm. uses or I f- not a you're a bad person but i guess yeah. she uses it that way it w- it, that's the joke um is that you'd win an award for that but yeah, yeah it's like you see that big splayed visual first and then it takes a couple of panels to explain the joke and even those aren't that clear because they're like right. in some of the panels they're also they're already making the joke before you know what it is which you know i guess in a traditional yeah. in a in a written narrative that could happen you know characters can banter and then there can be some reflection after the banter so it's not I don't know. It's it, it was odd because it did throw me off reading this, but I think maybe it's just the we're, the, we're dealing with a graphic novel here that is more complex, has more intricacies to it, or certainly, you know, a lot of layers to unravel from one another to pick apart. So I think maybe it's just, you have to just kind of mm-hmm. acclimate yourself to that and be open to rereading, doing things like that. Any yeah, other highs or sure. lows for you? I think we covered all mine.
1: Oh, okay. Um, I do have one more high. And um, that is the creativity with which she depicts her characters as monsters. I really enjoyed seeing how she would change even like the minor characters into uh, monstrous creations. So Franklin becomes Frankenstein's monster. There's a similar look and a kind of demeanor. So the beginning of, of that chapter with Franklin when she's at the museum we see Frankenstein's monster on the on the cover the the chapter break there and the similarity between that and Franklin and the way that she draws Franklin is like obvious (laughs) pretty obvious but um kind of the slow moving and slow talking way as well kind of because we know that she's comparing him to frankenstein's monster the way that he speaks it makes me think that he also speaks probably like more slowly and maybe he shuffles more shuffles Mm -hmm. along when he's not like you know running away from nuns does he yeah Yeah. (laughs) stuff like that so (laughs) and um and d's as a dragon um I th- I really enjoyed that because the even the way that she drew the dragon which is um right next to how she draws d's like the similarities are very clear um physically but also like it's clearly a dragon it's clearly a human and somehow she's able to make these two completely different um creatures look like they're related in some way and I I just found that really fascinating and mr silverberg as a mummy she never actually like you know actually states that that's what it looks like but all the the hints to it which are all the the egyptian symbols throughout his home and the way that he's like covered in bandages and the scars and the the way that his face looks so dried out Mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I just, I, I don't know. I think that she did such an amazing job with coming up with monster equivalents for the I think, all the yeah, characters.
0: Franklin and Sandy, to me, had some of the more, I don't know if they were subtle, especially with Sandy. I don't know if it was subtle, but some of the, just the better panels or full drawings that just evoked I don't know the level of detail in it, the with the things it evoked and the creepiness of it, but also in Sandy's case, it's a little bit like to be pitied. I think in Franklin's case, it's a little more, uh, yeah, kind of like you described, like firm or something, a little stoic or something. He just has kind of a solidity or something about him in the way he's drawn, but. Yeah, they they both get really incredible detail, and I think the side character those side characters, and maybe I was just latching onto the characters that were her age or something. They felt a little more urgent or some, something to me in the narrative. But uh, yeah, they definitely stood out those two mm-hmm. the way they're depicted. It's good. Any other highs or lows? Yeah. Excellent. Nope, that's it for okay, me. Well, let's move on to the other kind of analytical part of this episode, which will be the imaginary essay. This is when Amanda and I each prepare an essay prompt for the other person, and then we attempt to answer it. Not in an actual essay, of course, if it's your first time listening in, we don't actually write any essays up. We just do an outline and prepare a couple of thoughts and ideas to respond to the prompt. Amanda, I'll throw mine at you first this week, I suppose. Do you want to go first? All right. Excellent. Let's have you go first then. Uh, My prompt or question for you, Amanda, is especially by the conclusion of this story, I think it's pretty clear it's one about family. So what is your analysis of Ferris's treatment of family in the story? How does Ferris do that? What importance does family have for its various cast of characters? So feel free to go outside of the immediate family. And then, of course, feel free to tie this idea into any other motifs or ideas, I guess, just that stood out in general, including, of course, the idea of someone being a monster so take it away what's family what's up with the family
1: <laughs> um so the way that i saw the family depictions i actually was able to kind of break it into three categories um mm-hmm. based on of course the core family being uh, karen d's and mama but we also see um, other families with Anka and her family, which would be Sonia and the Brothel. Even Mister or even Schutz with um, Anka is kind of like family, and I'll get more into that. And then there's also Gronin's, the Gronin family. Um, and then we also see Missy and her mom, their relationship as well. So there's actually quite a few different examples of, of family, but I think that... With Karen's core family, we can actually have those other families are almost like like little pieces of um, or little examples of what um, um, Karen's family is is like. So the three categories that I have are uh, safety and comfort, and then there's, the other one is hiding or not seeing or secrets, and the other is revenge and violence. So all three of those elements are found in these examples of family so far. All,
0: all great things, though I guess comfort is. So.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the first one is... Well-functioning um, yeah. families with,
0: with only positive things. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, And what I noticed, too, is actually that um, when it comes to safety and comfort, it is the mother figures who provide that, not the father figures who provide that. Not to say that all the mothers are great, because we definitely see examples of moms who are total assholes. Um, But the ones who do provide comfort are Mother figures. So, for example, we have Mama, and specifically, we start off the the novel with Mama's eye forest, the the forest in her eye, and how Karen feels like this sense of comfort and safety in it, in that she like goes to the eye forest both at the beginning of the novel and at the end of the novel in order to kind of escape from the, at first it's her nightmare and then at the end to escape from her mother's death and the the feelings that she has from that. Um, so there's mm-hmm. comfort there. Another example of comfort that we find is uh, Franklin's mother. So we don't actually see Franklin's mom until the end of his chapter right, when yeah. she shows up to comfort him after finding out about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and so, um, she immediately, he's like inconsolable, right? He's, he's punching at a trash can. He's crying. He's obviously very upset, but the mother comes and she's just instantly is able to calm him down and get him back home. So there's, uh, the level of comfort there as well. And we also see it with Anka and Sonia, who was the cook at the brothel, um, um, And Sonia actually protected Anka from her own (laughs) biological mother, but also protected her from, like, having to see some of what was happening in the brothel at the same time. So there's that sense of protection. And what I thought was interesting, too, with Anka, which perhaps is why her life is, like, so topsy-turvy as well, and and her relationships with people is so topsy-turvy, is that... Anka found safety and comfort in Schutz, which is weird because right. he's, you know, a gross human being. Or at um, least a savior.
0: I don't know about yeah. comfort, but a savior, right. yeah.
1: And, and perhaps comfort in, in in as far as, like, material comforts mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, yeah, right. But, yeah, safety in that he saved her from the cultists and he saved her from the concentration camp. Right. Um and he also set her up for life after he was done with her, too. Like, he didn't just, like, you know, kick her and be like, yeah, good luck, you know. Mm-hmm. But so there's also, like, the protection that he provided in that way. Um, so that is the idea of, like, safety and comfort. The other aspect of the family that I noticed was the idea of, like, hiding and not seeing. And, and the idea of secrets, which I think ties to the motif of, like, the eyes constantly um, mm-hmm. A visual in in this novel so with Dees and Karen there's the hiding of information about Victor and Dees like is tr- he tries to hide information from Karen as well as and one example that comes to mind is when he tried to lie to her about why she was going to be staying at home he was like oh you just got suspended um Right. So you gotta right. stay at home. And she's like, Don't lie to me, dude. Like I know <laughs> no, that's <laughs> not the reason. And so he finally comes and comes clean and talks about how sick mama is. Um so there's that aspect of like the kind of like hiding and not seeing, and then there's between Dee's and Mama, Mama specifically and purposefully does not acknowledge Deez's um sexual activities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, And so she turns a blind eye to that um, and only wants to see the good in her children in a lot of ways, Um, despite, I suppose, the whole Victor thing. And also with um, Mama and Karen, like there's a lot of secrets going back and forth there where Mama won't talk to her about Victor. She doesn't want to tell her about Anka's Like, her suspicions about Anka's death. She wants to keep her protected from all of that. And at the same time, Karen um, uses the monster image for herself in order to hide who she is, which is um, she's not ready to out herself to her family at that time. So Mm -hmm. there's that. Um, And then with Missy and her mother, too, there's missy is like hiding the fact that she's still friends with karen and that she's like sneaking off to hang out with karen and stuff like that so what's interesting about like the hiding and not seeing thing is is that it is a form of almost protection or intended protection um but by doing so um as as karen pointed out um not knowing and being left in the dark about these things and being left to figure it out by themselves. It's like it provide it, it actually makes things, makes them feel worse than if they were just told straight up. Um, anyway, so that yeah, was interesting. Yeah. That's another aspect I think of what the family dynamic is. And um, the final one is revenge and violence, um, which is, seems like a weird one, <laughs> for a family dynamic. um, But with revenge, with vengeance and and the idea of revenge, people do it because it's a sense of like righteousness. Like I'm doing it for their honor and and stuff like that, but it's still an act of violence. Um, So it's meant on the surface to be a form of protection, but it's just reactionary and out of, you know, negative emotions. So, with Dee's, um, Karen's afraid to tell Dee's about what Jerry actually tried to do to her in the schoolyard, which is why she got in trouble and and Franklin had to save her. So she won't tell him that she was almost raped because she knows that Dee's would absolutely just like murder that kid because right. Dee's has that dark side to him, and Dee's is somebody who would a hundred percent be all about the vengeance. And she even has like a couple of examples where he's like he went after a some of the neighborhood kids on her behalf before, so she knows <laughs> that that would happen, and then there's also um Laughing Jack Gronin, and so his family is his wife, mrs. Gronin um, and so the 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 issue there is that uh, obviously Mrs. Gronin is using D s while Mr. Gronin is in jail, and so Gronin calls. Um, to check in on his wife so he calls Karen and talks to her because he's like paid Karen to be his spy mm-hmm. um, to be his set of eyes anyway um, but he's like obviously she she compares him to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for an obvious reason right so he seems like a really nice guy but then you get on his wrong side and he's like murderous so um, there's that and then with Anka's mom the constant abuse in the guise of love, as far as like she'll use sweet words and offer her candy and stuff like that. But as soon as Anka comes into the bedroom, she's like burning her with cigarettes and stuff, right? Right. And trying to right. teach her that she can never trust anybody in her life. Um, that is an example again of like the idea of like protection, right? Even with Gronin, he's like protecting the virtue of his wife and protecting his family um, as a unit. But they're using violence um, in order to do that or the Mm -hmm. threat of violence to do that. Yeah. And I think
0: with these two, a lot of that stuff is implied. I don't know if he ever, I wonder if he ever did violence in front of Karen. I can't think of an example. Obviously at the ending, I know he's really drunk and is belligerent in front of her, but I wonder if he, does he commit any violence in front of Karen?
1: I don't think that she has seen any violence except right. for that one scene where he, like, spanks himself with the belt and is, like...
0: Yeah, but that's played such for... I mean, I don't know if it's played for laughs for the audience, but the characters laugh about it. She she smiles about it in bed.
1: She does, but then he he's, like... It, it, when Hitting you look himself. At the, yeah, when you look at the panel's... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way that she draws Deez, Deez is obviously like he is punishing himself for something. Like actually.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. And he hits himself and then it turns, yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah. It opens with, well, I think she even says we do this routine. So it's, they have right. a ritual of kind of faking the violence, like his relationship with her is so different than with the neighborhood or with his, just as with his reputation or something, but right. Yeah. Yeah excellent okay any other thoughts on any of the other families including a shout out to sandy's ghost family
1: (laughs) yeah the the negligence there we never even get to meet them
0: (laughs) i'm convinced she's not real after the franklin passage with the museum i'm now convinced that i we i know i made the joke about the ghost in the first part but i'm convinced now that she is a real figment of her imagination that she imagined a friend after her real friend left her what's her real friend's name I keep forgetting Missy Sandy, it's those S's I just can't, I'm like, I don't, I know the difference between them, but yeah, I think when her real friend abandoned her, she just invented this fictitious other person to spend some time with, go to tragic birthday parties with, so I'm, I'm now convinced after the Franklin passage that she's fake, but I don't know, I, I don't think she needs to be, or, and I certainly didn't in the first half think she needed to be, I thought it was effective that, you know, there's, it seems like her neighborhood's pretty, pretty rough, people are downtrodden there, people, you know, desperate for opportunity are not raising kids in the it's more of a 60s style more of a hands-off latchkey kid style (laughs) yeah (laughs) um which you know the times and the situations demanded but anyway any final thoughts on family
1: uh nope that was that was it for me
0: okay excellent um throw your prompt my way and i'll do my best to address it
1: sure um we had discussed the motif of eyes in the last episode in the final scene of this volume we meet Victor inside of Mom's Mama's eye forest and he's also covered in eyes. Mm-hmm. What do you think the significance of the eye motif is especially regarding this final image in this volume?
0: Yeah, I don't think my reading of that image is going to be sophisticated, so let's start there and then I'll kind of go backwards. I think it's pretty I mean it's pretty straightforward as far as the symbol goes. I normally relates to some kind of truth or insight, some kind of revelation, some kind of, you know, being able to... The cliche, I think, is it's the window to the soul or whatever, that exp- however that expression goes. But so I think then, fitting enough that it happens there, fitting enough that he is kind of surrounded by these eyes covered in them, because it's the biggest revelation of, of the story, frankly. I mean, we didn't get a resolution on Anka's murder, and so this is as close as we get to a massive miss kind of shift in understanding about the family or shift in understanding about D's. I mean, we knew he had violent tendencies, but this potentially having killed the sibling that she didn't never met would be a pretty massive shift in what to expect from him and what he's like. And so now that... And who knows if in Volume 2 that will be a real revelation. It isn't a kind of hallucinogenic state or dream. I think it's supposed to be a dream sequence, but if we assume, based on the other clues and everything, what the peeping guy said to her and what and even what has himself said or admitted, it seems like this is going to be what the second half covers, right? This is a big twist. This is a big moment. So it's just a revelation of, like, twist. Or uh, truth, rather. It's kind of a new apparent thing that's going to shift her reality, shift her understanding of her family. And so... yeah, I, I'm not going to read the symbol too far beyond that for that scene, mostly just because I'm not really sure if I'm missing an angle on that in that moment. What do you think? Any anything from that scene with the eyes? They, they are kind of positioned, I guess, kind of on the body in a way. I'm not sure if you read that to mean something.
1: I'm not sure because, yeah, there's the eyes are like there are several eyes on yeah, there and they're yeah. all blue colored, too, which which is very distinct. And I found that interesting because Schutz, um, in some of the images of Schutz, his, one of his eyes is blue.
0: As oh, well. okay. So the other, I didn't know yeah. whether there was a connection there. The other predom- predominantly rather blue colored thing is Mr. S. Isn't he always blue? He's always got his yeah. melancholy blue. He's, I, I just the most vivid pictures of him that come to mind are in blue. I did go back to check to see if the remember that when she's at the museum or she sees that painting that has a demon that is hidden in the background or is kind of painted Mm -hmm. away in a corner or something I went to see. And then it kind of turns into a face, turns into a character and speaks to her and kind of taunts her. Uh, I went back to see if the eye had anything in common with that. Not really. I thought maybe it would be the same shape or something, some kind of, yeah, usage of that motif or idea again but I didn't see any connections immediately so again I was just stuck with my simple eye interpretation but yeah. I was curious if you had any other thoughts on that scene but uh, a couple other examples so then that's my thought on the scene but then more broadly yeah I think it's I mean to Ferris's credit this she draws human emotion so well as you know you need to if you're going to make a book like this where a lot of these are close-ups there's a lot of really meaningful profile shots and kind of full face shots so of course a lot of the book is done with really subtle detail and really intricate storytelling detail built into the face and like you have pointed out the eyes i'm just going to talk through a couple because you could probably flip to you know, every other page and find <laughs> some interesting eye, some kind of the way a character's positioned, the way that they're what they're looking at, their response to it, emotional state, all that stuff. And I just pulled a couple that stood out and I tried to pull some that don't that maybe weren't super obvious or as obvious. I'm gonna talk through one that's obvious, I guess. Um but let's start with the moment, I don't know if you notice this one. This is going to do my page flipping here. This is when Anka is in the concentration camp and she realizes that the displays are fake and so she she understands that they're part of a massive there's some kind of massive conspiracy thing happening. They're not quite clear what's going on fully. They just know they've been rounded up. But once she realizes that's when she panics and escapes. There are a couple scenes with eyes there that stood out. The first is the beginning of that sequence. There's a bunch of guards, Nazi guards, who are portrayed. I think there's four, yeah, there's four of them on this page. And it's it's obviously the whole visage that is so creepy and off-putting. But when you look down the row of these guards, the SS guards, the eyes do tell different tales. There's one that's kind of lustful and eager. One is more kind of dopey and just kind of sedated looking almost. Like he's just kind of like happy to have these women here. Another looks a little more nervous. But they're all in different states of, if not euphoria, then pleasure or something. And it just, as a group, they put together a really eerie... Kind of composite of these people who have this power and they're, you know, committing genocide, organized genocide together. And so it just that whole opening bit was so creepy, I thought so off putting and a lot of it's in the eyes. And then if you look to the exact moment when she is looking at the bakery display and realizes that there's not a woman in there, it's, a, it's like a mannequin, it shows the perspective from the mannequin's face, and then it's kind of in the background as Anka. The contrast in their eyes, obviously the mannequin is completely dead-faced, dead-eyed. I mean, it looks pleased or what have you, it looks pretty neutral, but it's it's literally like a cracked face and is shattered. Mm-hmm. And then in the background, it's Anka's eyes that stand out because, you know, they're bulging and she's looking down and sort of like at this, you know, earthy revelation, this like horrible truth. It just and her face isn't even that big. But the contrast, obviously, between that kind of dead eyed, dead visage and then Anka's, you know, horror in the background. I thought a lot of that was in the eyes. So that I thought that for Anka was a great moment of, you know eye detail and I think it's just in that case the purpose is just to underscore some emotional intensity and for the SS guards reinforce some character but I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you recalled those moments or if those stood out
1: yeah, for sure, and especially the the mannequin for me I was like, man, the way she drew that is so creepy.
0: Yeah, it looks like a kind of a 1950s model housewife or something, like you'd see from those old, like, Leave It to Beaver style. (laughs) I'm not really sure if I'm referencing the right pop culture, but it just had such a, I don't know, yeah, an old-time housewife feel to it, and then for it to be so dead in the face is just eerie. Looks um, rather creepy. Let's jump to a more meaningful scene, though, that obviously has a lot of meaning in the eyes and a lot of significance. The full- page d spread which is after her mother passes he's drunk out of his mind his eyes kind of go super red probably from intoxication and being inebriated and everything and yeah she just draws a massive full page spread of him he's got kind of one eye on each page he's taking up the middle of the frame it was just the, it was the most demonic and i'm not sure if it was like the way his the haircut he has with the goatee but then the long sideburns, it just all kind of felt a little snake-like and a little demonic, the way he was portrayed. He's obviously much more red than usual. that's That adds to the kind of hellishness. And I know that's more about the face than the eyes. But in this case, the eyes in particular, they're just they're intense, they're focused, so it's we know that his grief isn't—it's sloppy, and that he's drunk. But it's not sloppy, and that he's mourning something randomly. It's like he's has a very intense sadness about him, and the eyes do show that—they show that he's like laser focused. But also, everything's off. You know, the colors off. It's everything's more intense than it should be, and it is one type of portrait of grief. I mean, I know the example I gave before was to underscore some emotions. This one is too, but yeah, it just—that I think is meant to be a shocking spread. Not maybe not as shocking as were you most surprised in the book when they did the one panel of, uh, Karen's actual face? Cause I think that was meant to be kind of a surprise moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a surprise moment. She's such a cute little girl, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. I was surprised that she drew herself as, as her human self
0: yeah this is all. also i just realized the page with the d's big page spread when he does almost admit to killing the sibling we we now assume it was their sibling instead he just says something about he committed a violent crime or did something really wrong or i forget how he phrases it because he never fully admitted but yeah he just yeah his eyes have that kind of i don't know almost demonic truth telling to them i don't know were you able to find that page do you know what i'm referencing
1: yeah, for sure. And and yeah. the I I very distinctly remember the red eyes of Dee's. Like that's how that was part of like how I knew that um that the the progression of mama's disease was like like she's obviously not getting any better is because he's looking more and more worn down and there's a lot more of the red incorporated into his visuals which uh, historically, for this novel, if there's if there's red, then there's usually no, it's not a good color.
0: <laughs> oh, certainly not. No, yeah, the, the way it's deployed is almost always for the for the actual monsters, not for the Karen style. And yeah. then the final use of eyes that I wanted to highlight was just when Franklin gets introduced. Now, again, well. Let me, let me bounce off that quickly. Sorry, I turned away from my Mark. Let me bounce off that quickly, because I actually want to use a different example. I think, by the way, Franklin, is as we pointed out earlier, I think is one of the better drawn. He has such little subtle details, but he just kind of remains kind of this placid figure, you know, kind of a strong, calm presence. I'd actually rather point out the other one that came to mind was, I want to talk about Franklin, but then this other example... Um, was when they meet in the hallway and both Karen and her friend Missy are drawn as monsters. They're the werewolf and vampire combo and they're hugging in the hallway. But it's when they both close their eyes, which I thought was, you know, I know I'm picking kind of copping out for my final example, but it, it was such a reprieve. Obviously, it's a funny little space to have a moment of intimacy. It's probably one of the least intimate spaces in all of the world is like apartment, concrete, walkways or stairways <laughs> hallways with your mom but,
1: yelling at you uh-huh. from above
0: <laughs> but we all know how the youth need to sneak in intimacy however and whenever they can they get creative and they don't and they don't get picky and so yeah, it just I just thought that them, firstly, being drawn and so clearly detailed, sharply detailed as the monsters was perfect. It was the first time that we'd seen them that way. We'd seen them depicted in other ways, being close or even intimate. But this was the first time they were both in Karen's mind. You know, that's how Karen would want it, right? A couple of right. monsters in love. But then, yeah, they, it's just such a nice respite. It really underscores the feeling of the moment. And so I think my takeaway in general is just... If you follow the eyes in this work, you'll get to, I think, some really powerful character insights, and it prepares you emotionally for the scene, and it underscores those things well, which, you know, in keeping with the general eye motif, kind of its broad purpose in literature, is pretty fitting. I'm not sure if I picked up on... I don't know, again, I'll throw it to you, but I'm not sure if I missed some broader connections. There's probably a lot more symbolic work or kind of interpretation that could be done. But I do think in just a baseline sort of storytelling way, it does function really well for her. And she makes such great use of it. You know, she captures the eye, she captures the face really extremely well, potently. And you need that, right, for a graphic novel. You need that to be underscored. The narrative can't do it for you.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, the the way that she draws her characters... Is there's just as much characterization in her drawings as there is in the way that she writes, yeah, perhaps even more so, like we definitely get by seeing these characters' emotional reactions on the page with their facial expressions and and everything like that, I think mm-hmm. provides us with more insight into the characters themselves for sure,
0: totally, and I think any graphic novel you know that it relies on that for narration, it relies on that for for the storytelling elements it can't do out loud and so your description earlier in the pod about Franklin I think was perfect and it just gave you can kind of bring that life because of the drawings you can bring that life when you're describing that character you can make assumptions and make these inferences even about how they would sound or move without really needing to be told yeah Mm -hmm. I think the when they had that closed eyes monster scene I think that's one of the frames one of the pictures that'll stick with me the most so deserved yeah, before karen's whole life fell apart basically yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yeah bit of a tragic well you know then she gets the phone call later so maybe that maybe it wasn't she was worried it was kind of a shallow reaching out but maybe that'll be something she can put some hope into any other thoughts on the imot for you i just thought i'd talk through a couple examples
1: no, I think that's great.
0: Again, flip flip any page and you'll see some kind of meaningful characters, stare, glare, eye. You know, there's I don't know. I felt there were so many examples to pick from. And again, I wanted to talk through some of Franklin's, but I feel like we covered him well earlier. Okay. If no other thoughts on those motifs, let's move now to the final couple segments of the pod. We'll do begin here at the ending anyway, with the lost pages. This is a segment where we each pick a topic, character, subject, anything really from the story or from the book that we felt was underexplored Basically basically something that we want more of. Another chapter, maybe its own side project of some kind. Amanda, for this book, I guess this... So, I'll go first, because I did write the most obvious one. I guess I'll just get it out of the way. The Lost Pages yeah. is part two of this story. I mean, it just needs to be finished now. <laughs> so, I, the Lost Pages are, can we, you know, please get the next one? I think we're both eager to read it and would happily dive back into the world, dive back into the drawing. Um, But given the current scope of the story, I'll actually answer the question in in the um, way the question has been phrased. I'll honor the question. I just think Mr. S gets the most maybe page time for a side character just I would have cut one of the characters and then given more time to the others I suppose is my lost pages which I know is more of an annoying editors commentary but I just think maybe it was one side character too many I loved every minute with Franklin and Sandy even Missy I think they had that such poignant drawings at the end like we just discussed so I'll take more of that but yeah I don't maybe there were just one too many adult characters did I really need the part when she gets the hallucination with the hippies and that scene and the cemetery it was an interesting scene but i i don't know i just think maybe a little bit less with a with a character or two here or there and then maybe you know, just dedicate that to someone else, which I hope that's not a cop-out answer, but maybe how about this definitively, then more Franklin for sure, more Sandy, but especially Franklin. So we can get a little more into the racial component, more into the politics of the time, because it's really lightly grazed. And again, that's kind of, it just felt like a lot of that stuff got dumped with Franklin. It was just kind of like, Oh, by the way, we're going to have this character do this part of the story now. And I just, I think part two, obviously he'll come back. I'm sure. And there's obviously already ramifications because of the rioting and stuff. That's, like, becoming a, a important part of the city. And so, yeah, I guess that would be my Lost Pages. Hopefully that wasn't too broad.
1: No, not at all. And um, I, but, yeah. my Lost Pages is also just Franklin. Like, I, I loved his character mm-hmm. so much. Like, he was just this stoic guy. He's the only one who chuckles at Karen's uh, Valentine's Day card, right? He yeah. He saves yeah. her. And then he's like giving these uh, art critiques about fashion and about how fashion, the, the, what's being worn in the paintings, are indicative of, of characterization and also of the artist's own feelings about the subject. And so I just, he's such a fascinating character. And then we also find out that his mom is like a medium right like she can talk to ghosts as well and
0: yeah and yeah
1: that's how she finds him and it's just I, what a fascinating person like i just i would love to and i'm surprised that karen wasn't more interested in in franklin's mom considering the the supernatural aspect there um i really hope that in volume 2 we get to see some of that <laughs> actually totally um but yeah i just I would love to have seen more of Franklin's character, and I I loved that chapter so, so much, and I just wanted to see more of that as well, and I really hope that he's in volume two.
0: (laughs) I have to imagine, right? I uh, can't—I don't know. Again, I'm showing my own bias. I've said this enough on the pod, today's pod— I can't imagine the scope will go too much beyond this cast in part two. I mean, obviously there's right. a new brother to introduce, uh, deceased. So maybe with that will come a couple of new threads. But it's you've just laid such good groundwork. I, at some point you just, I, I don't know, I just want to be like, stop, stop going so broad. Like we can, you know, d- <laughs> do some depth with what you have. You have such incredible stuff to work with. And I, yeah, I don't know. Some of the side characters, again, didn't grip me maybe as much or side plots, but ultimately it's, You know, quite a tapestry of people Of a neighborhood, you know, of a place And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think Franklin's As great a pick as any It also, I thought his stuff with the Since he was such an outsider perspective in the museum Right, we mostly get Karen's interpretations And Deez's Right. I thought that adding him then was such a clever move because it allowed her to go back to redrawing some of those famous pieces of art and kind of discussing them, putting in some theories, putting in, frankly, some philosophy. It's kind of how Karen wants to process the world. So it's the place in the text where we can get her general worldviews and her approach to how she wants to understand these murders and everything anyway so I thought inserting a kind of a third party into that brought such a good life to it and it made it it made a clear trope for her not feel quite as much of a crutch or something it made it feel like a fresh interesting way to keep doing that and keep revisiting that and so she's really yeah it gave it new life maybe that's why I appreciated him so much too yeah any final thoughts on uh, lost pages
1: Nope, that's it
0: for me. We eagerly await the sequel. That's really it. That's, <laughs> that's the Lost Ages. Sure. <laughs> yeah, there's not much else to say except bring on part two uh, whenever and however that's possible. Anyway, let's move now to the final segment that, Amanda, this is the critical assistance part of the pod. This is when we reach outside of ourselves and our own analyses and we go to some reviews of the book or, you know, critical responses to it. It doesn't have to be reviews, but they tend to be. And we've each pulled a different one. We'll read some quotes from the review or the discussion. And then we'll also toss in our own opinions, respond to the criticism, and see what other people had to say. Amanda, why don't you start us off with your critical assistance for this book?
1: Yep. Mine is from NPR. um, Hmm. And it's called My Favorite Thing is Monsters, is a dazzling graphic novel tour de force by John Powers. Um, And he was obviously... Very positive about this novel. So I pulled a few quotes. Until she sent off the manuscript, nobody in the comics world had ever heard of her. I certainly hadn't. But this extraordinary book has instantly rocketed Ferris into the graphic novel elite, alongside Art Spiegelman, Alison Bechdel, Bechtel. and Chris Ware. You see, she's produced something rare, a page-turning story whose pages are so brilliantly drawn, you don't want to turn them. Um, So I I was like, yes, I have never heard of her, but I also have not heard of those three other writers because I don't read graphic novels usually. Um, I've only Mm -hmm. read, uh, you know, mangas and and other things, some comic books, but not actual graphic Mm -hmm. novels except for the one that I had mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So I I was like oh I'm I'm glad that you know she's this is something that would be alongside you know really popular ones um but I also agreed with his final statement there which is the the page turning story whose pages are so brilliantly drawn you don't want to turn them and it's true like I would actually spend more time looking at the pictures than like reading Mm -hmm. the text on the page a lot of the time just because it is so uh, there's just so many details there especially when we take into account that a lot of her symbolism is coming into play in the the drawings as well so it's like you have to just like take in all of that image before you can continue the story otherwise you're just going to completely miss like parts of like particular meanings and and ideas and themes that she's trying to impart so
0: no completely I think there's a flow you'll get into with this one that and that flow will be pretty slow and patient and even if like me is more because you're kind of i don't know i was gonna say babbling your way it's not babbling but i kind of stumbled my way through some pages again picking the wrong order what have you i mean you're gonna end up spending time with it no matter what basically whether it's because you're like me or just because you want to savor it so it has that quality for sure
1: yeah um Powers goes on to say, breaking away from the panel format customary in comics, Ferris's densely imagined cross-hatched images explode with a visual freedom I've not seen in a graphic novel. And she uses that freedom to give us, well, everything. I pulled this one because you and I had talked a little bit about um, the... In the last episode, about like how the paneling and how the the flow of the visuals and and the flow of the story itself is not always like clearly uh, placed in in the organization mm-hmm. of the page, um, right? Right. And he actually, John Powers, obviously sees it as like a um, as you had said, experimental, and he sees it as experimental, but in a way that's a very positive thing. And um, oh yeah, yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting.
0: No, it's a new language. I think it can only be considered a good thing. And it's not so far removed. Uh, There's certain experimentations in art that I will support but not enjoy which i think is a pretty with avant-garde art or anything new that's often the stance for kind of a normie like me i guess where it's i'll try and grapple with something but it doesn't mean i'll enjoy it doesn't mean i'll ever fully come around or something i think this is still very much within the i mean this is a graphic novel with a chronological narrative and characters and everything like it's it's not so avant-garde to, as to be unapproachable, but I do think it, it definitely invented some clever maneuvers and invented some ways to put pages together and use full-page spreads versus some, some paneling, and yeah, it's just so playful. I think it's the perfect amount of experimentation, especially for someone like me who's a, you know, I don't know, I'm like a five to ten graphic novels a year kind of person, and so for someone like me, it's kind of mind-blowing just because I'll happily enjoy something a little more t- tame or controlled or something than this is, yeah, I don't think it sacrifices clarity for this, though, yeah, I mean, again, I, I issued um, and voiced my issues with just a little moments of confusion, but as a percentage, right, this is 400 pages, maybe that happened to me on 30 pages, roughly, I don't know, not even, I mean, way, way less than a third of them, I'd say that, um, yeah, so maybe 10% of them, I was like, eh, I just, you know, caught the wrong angle or jumped the wrong dialogue box or something.
1: Yeah um and finally he says For all its stylistic tour de force my favorite thing is Monsters is filled with emotion, and while the material is often dark, the book is strangely affirmative. This is partly because of its affection for Oddballs, which harks back to the work of R. Crumb, and partly because its pages brim with Karen's genuine love for her mother and her brother, for her gritty neighborhood, for monster movies, and for the magic of art, which lets her transform and transcend her often hard daily life. Um, I, I enjoyed that last statement about the magic of art because I think that magic is kind of a part of the art for her, which is why she's able to actually go in and out of these art pieces when she goes to the museum. Um, and it does allow her to transform. And, and she does change. And the paintings change. And her perceptions change. And, and art is definitely um, something in her life that creates the space for her to kind of understand the world around her, which I've found Mm -hmm. really fascinating.
0: Yeah. Such a well-chosen. We also covered on episode one. I don't want to retread too much ground, but I at least covered how I thought the, the kind of diegetic storytelling is just unbelievable, but you don't even need to believe it to make the story really work. Just at the very least that it captures her point of view and her worldview is perfect. It's exactly how a person of her age and with her interests would see the world. So even if you don't buy into the actual drawings being literally hers or what have you, the the whole narrative point of view is, yeah, perfect. Excellent. Okay. Any other thoughts on that one? So mostly agreement. I mostly agree with my review that I picked.
1: Oh, yeah. I feel like there were probably very few negative reviews out there.
0: <laughs> I did see in the in the i think it was in the one i pulled i think i read three before i picked the one i did i'll see if any of the quotes draw this up there were a couple quotes of just slight criticisms but it was a lot of what we said it was a lot of like maybe these characters are a bit too too many maybe the pacing is a bit odd and then maybe like um what was the other one we talked oh maybe just that the transitions yeah like the pacing just is a little bit abrupt or something but overall no it's it was hailed as kind of a masterpiece so i ended up choosing when everyone's a monster no one is the ugly every day in my favorite thing is monsters by m nordling this is on tor.com tor.com which is a fantasy and sci-fi publisher so they sometimes put criticism and stuff up there so anyway this is a review of the book first quote it would be easy and cliche to say that karen learns that humans were the real monsters all along kids are smarter than we give them credit for and so are comics but even the good ones are monsters even karen's beloved brother d's beauty the grotesque and the banal coexist in this graphic novel in its visuals its characters and in its driving ethos which i thought was such a nice list and such a good summary of what i would agree with which is It is beautiful, grotesque, and kind of banal. It celebrates all of those things. It's a grungy kind of neighborhood. It's downtrodden a little bit. It's in a difficult time. As we learn later, it's literally kind of caught up in a a race riot due to the murder of Dr. King. And so... It just wants to take all of that and mix it together. The characters get gorgeous kind of full panel shots, but then they also get their monstrous versions. They'll also get quick sketches and panels and really rough kind of cuts of them. I'm thinking again of Sandy, who gets that really gorgeous one-page introduction, big big profile of her. But, you know, she's still hollowed-eyed. She still looks kind of sickly and unwell and everything but it's drawn with care and the one that stood out to me in that is like the only person I think who escapes this is Anka, her life is grotesque and she has to deal with horrifying things but the Ferris really does I feel like pull her out she is drawn very softly to me, I think if I just looked at like the lines don't overlap as much. The cross, the, the hatching is more delicate. There's more light on her. It's softer. It just, I feel like every time Anka is drawn or not every time, but a lot of the drawings of Anka are more, it's just a little softer, more ethereal or something. But I thought that was a great summary of the style.
1: And I think also with Anka's coloring, cause she's also blue, but she's like a softer blue than um, Mr. S's mm-hmm. blue. Right. Um, all of that, yeah, I'd say makes her a little bit softer. The only time that we see any hard lines with Anka is when she's wearing that, like, plague mask when she goes to attack her mom.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, um, right.
1: But that's the only time that we see any, like, hard lines with her, so... Yeah,
0: Yeah. even the cover art has that same... captures that same quality in her that Ferris captures so well, which is just sort She just doesn't get as much of the out-of-bounds, sketchy, overlappy type of lines. It's It's much more... Mm-hmm coherent or something Um, next quote this graphic novel messes with our expectations in lots of ways, but it's playfulness with genre and former chief among them. The comic is a queer coming-of-age story as it follows Karen's first experiences of grief and realizations that her family is less than perfect. It is a crime noir, complete with trench coat, hat, and tape recorder as Karen devours the mysteries left in the wake of Anka's death. It is historical fiction. It's a love story. It's a pulpy monster and ghost story rolled into one. Somehow, none of these elements feel disparate because we're reading from Karen's point of view. There's a child's logic that holds everything together now i wanted to mostly pull this for the last quote because i think all those genre descriptions and overlaps are perfectly well proven that's yep a lot of different things there's a literal you know what 50 page historical digression about concentration camps and the and the effects of in germany and her life as a prostitute now it's just yeah there's whole there's really long digressions in this book anyway but it's the child's logic thing is intriguing. I was wondering if that quote would do anything for you in helping to justify some of the jumpiness we found, some of the kind of transition roughness, the timing that feels a bit odd at times, or if that did anything to help explain that.
1: It did. So, like, that's what I would like to think is the reason for it, (laughs) Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. is because it is told mostly from her perspective, versus, like, when we see Anka... Anka's narrative, um, the progression of her uh, life seems less. Um, it seems more like organized and, oh, yeah. and it's more yeah. chronological versus. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know exactly what the chronology is with um, going on with um, Karen's life. But yeah, I, I would like to attribute it to that because the the karen's narrative too like the way that we see everything is from her perspective which has a lot of the childish logic associated with that too right In her belief of um like omens and things like that too it's it's very much the the childish perspective that we see and and But I don't know if that is actually why it's so jumpy and (laughs) the transitions are a little weaker.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I just I was just trying to flip through really quick while you were elaborating just to find an example. I feel like we've said it enough. And I want to think we gave a couple examples, but just in case we've been a bit sloppy with trying to prove this point or something, here's one, I, and I found one almost instantly, because it does really <laughs> get jumpy. There's the page when she's coming out of the cemetery after her hallucination, she's, in, she's going to a wig shop, like, all of it's pretty clear, there's some interesting shots of a black cat, and just some imagery. Then there's the full page reflection, all done through memory or kind of sightseeing about the night the night machine and sort of all these there's people having sex there's a demon image or some kind of there's a gears grinding you know it's very symbolic and then the next page after that says since d's was was upstairs and then all of a sudden she's in the apartment so it's like okay was the middle page it read more like her philosophical musings about the night machine, not I see these things when I walk home. Like, and and again, maybe that was in the narrative. I didn't reread the lines just now, but that is just a quick example of how we go from like, okay, she's leaving this place. Fair enough to page of musings philosophy. And then all of a sudden she's talking to someone in her complex. Like it's, and I'm not sure what would resolve that. Maybe a line about when I got back. And again, Perhaps it said that I should probably should look a little more closely, but that's just a quick example of how it can kind of jump. And because she d- would dedicate a whole page to that night machine and the, you know all that those symbols and things, those musings, then to pull us back in, I think maybe that's where it's coming from because she does that sort of experimentation pretty often.
1: Yeah, the um, the one that I had mentioned in the the previous episode about transitions is going from like discussing D's in the cave as an eight year old boy saying that he's done something bad. And then the next page is like, I don't know why all these ladies really love D's. Why he's so Mm -hmm. popular with the ladies. It's like, what?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was flipping through another one the night when they're back when there's the lava lamp and they have, I almost forgot about this moment, but it's there. He gives her kind of an ornament or something. It has the one eye poked out of it. It's called the Darumas or Daruma. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, there's a page about that. They're discussing it. And then the next page opens with these days mama can only sleep when the TV's on. So it, then it's like, okay, well, have you transitioned to that night? Or are we just kind of, it's that timing issue again of just sort of like, okay, well, you had this moment with these little character moment and some art and everything. All of a sudden is it, again, is it that, so it's that night or is it just, you're trying to fill me in generally in this maybe like week or month of the of the general text yeah I don't know I mean maybe we're being too nitpicky with chronology or something because I certainly don't need everything to be fed in a perfect order and that having so following up with what I just said I think it was still pretty clear to me by the end the only thing that wasn't clear was like exactly the time window as you rightly noted but in general I think I know what happened how it happened the order of things happening (laughs) I just can't pin down and maybe that does bug my brain because my brain wants to be too organized or something but you're right I definitely can't pin down the period of time maybe six months maybe a month I, again at some points in the story you could have told me this was just the week Anka died and I'd be like yeah it's the week she died and they're, she's poking around that week I, but I truly don't know
1: <laughs> yeah it's, it's hard to tell
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and I think some of those jumps and transitions where it's from a specific reflection to here's a general truth here's amusing here's a reflection or something it's those can be rough or it's just hard to recenter the time period stuff or the timing so there's that too. And yeah, that writing it off as child's logic feels a bit generous, but fair enough, I suppose. Final thing. Uh, final quote rather from this one. Ferris's artwork itself is mostly intricate pen and marker, sketchy and cross-hatched but rarely messy. Her style however changes depending on Karen's state of mind or on her allusions to other artwork and then, you know, a lot of references to other things. One of the more remarkable stylistic choices I think is the use of panels, far more sparing than in your typical graphic novel and often used to impose order or temporality on a, onto a given scene. Ferris's style isn't just functional to the story, it is it very much is the story so the final line i think is probably the most important one we should just steal it for our recommendation which is just the the style is the story here for certain i mean it underscores the themes that you want to get to it underscores it it amplifies everything it's like a great amplifier of the the narrative that she's tugging at the themes the ideas the however you want to phrase it and so that is yeah i mean that's the line for sure that is a great summary of it um The imposing order and temporality, when I read that, I did look back over some of the pages that mix both a massive image and then on top of it is um, put some panels. That's definitely true. It, It does give her some cause and effect moments and allows her to be clear about how the scene's playing out or how a conversation goes. I still don't think... Well, I think at times it's like a remarkable and breathtaking and works perfectly because it allows her drawings to dominate and allows the arts, the art and the symbols and kind of the visual richness to take over. And then you're kind of just gliding with the text. You're not really as focused on that as you are just like taking in this wondrous art. So I think it works in that sense. I, I, again, don't think the panels are quite enough to overcome some of our critiques or sort of just the slight confusions we had but you know if that's the price paid for more experimental masterwork then again by the end of the book was i confused at all like no so i guess it worked you know (laughs) it wasn't that much of a problem
1: that's a good test
0: (laughs) right right yeah and i think most of those confusions can be cleared up by just doing another reread or flip back one page or something like that so
1: yeah
0: any other thoughts on those quotes?
1: uh nope
0: i'm good okay all in all i think the reviews you'd be hard pressed to find a negative one maybe our perspectives on some of the organization and transitions is about as negative as, as you'd find mm-hmm. all right mostly high praise and rightly so any final thoughts on my favorite thing is monsters by emil ferris amanda
1: release volume two <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah we just have to shout from the mountaintops maybe i'll send a kindly worded um link to our podcast to her like publisher's <laughs> email or something and say you know <laughs> we eagerly <laughs> await your message you know please any updates <laughs> i'll buy the hardcover this time you know whatever i have to do yeah. I'll, I'll pay full list price you know 55 dollars or whatever like a full a really long hardback graphic novel listed a full price would be like 50 bucks or something so yeah. i'll do it all right i'll do it
1: Just give it to us.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'll buy it from an independent bookstore, I promise you. Anyway. Okay. So other than a desperate plea, no other thoughts, though?
1: No, I'm good. (laughs) Excellent.
0: Yeah. Hopefully, this was an experimental one for us. Hopefully, discussing a graphic novel on the pod worked well enough, and i Really hard to say. We I don't even really have a sense of if our listeners have read or they just listen to these and they don't care if they've read, they just want to hear about books or something. <laughs> so hopefully if you have not read or had a chance to look at these, we spoke at least a little coherently, though, as always, our, we are targeting an audience that has read and seen this stuff. So hopefully for you folks, we are clear enough on the panels and the pages we discussed. We do have other books coming up on the podcast. We have other book clubs and reviews, or recommendations, rather, coming up. So in order, let's talk about those books very briefly. The next three books we have, again, in order, are going to be The Gunslinger by Stephen King. That is the first book in a series. We'll just be doing the first book. That's how we're always going to treat series on this. And then after that is Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change by by Elizabeth Colbert Colbert. And then after that will be Burnt Shadows by Camilla is it Camilla Shamise? Shamsy?
1: Shamsy.
0: Shamsy. I keep flipping okay. the yeah. S and the I in that word for some reason, that name. <laughs> so apologies. And I believe that is novel nonfiction novel, right?
1: Uh yeah. I think so. I think it's based gotcha. on some
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, some kind of memoir ish stuff. Yeah.
1: Autofiction. Novel-ish,
0: yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we're back in our fiction roots then. Okay. As always, we've been the Lightly Literary Podcast. Again, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. And please, we beg of you as always, and thank you for leaving likes and recommendations on a podcast platform of your choice. We're up on all the major ones. Amanda, anything to close out with before we end this shindig?
1: (laughs) if nope, I'm good.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, then, as always, folks, thanks for listening, and we will see you between the pages.